Wow, it's uh, wonderful to be uh, back here with you. I was here in, uh, on May 7th, 2017. I impressed Ken with my memory on that, but I'll have to ascribe the memory to uh, my phone that kept this, <laughs> this information in there. So it's really wonderful to be back with you today. Uh, Deborah, my wife, and I have spent a couple of years in Florida. I was working as a dean down there, uh, went over to the dark side of academic administration, and then finally after two years there, I said, enough, I'm retired now, hallelujah. All I can say is I recommend it. You know? <laughs> Deborah and I are calling it Act 3 of a three-act play, so still very, very active, and as Dr. Cho mentioned, still involved with uh, Native American issues, and uh, I will talk a little bit about that uh, today, but it really is good to be here uh, with you all, and I love the time of coffee. What's church without coffee, right? You know, I've always envisioned having a church where uh, people would come down the aisle with a coffee cart, just like they do on the airplanes. <laughs> you know, that, that seems to me to be uh, a very heavenly church. Can you say amen? You know, coffee, tea, whatever, a bottle of water is just fine, Coca-Cola, Dr. Pepper, right? So... Anyway, today uh, I, I uh, heard that some of you were in a Bible study on the book of Romans. How many of you were in a, a Bible study on Romans? Okay, so this sermon is just for you. The rest of you can listen in if you'd like. Um, and, and the question that always comes as you look at a book like Romans, and I hope you've read uh, the whole of the book of Romans, is what is it about? What is the book of Romans all about? Now, Martin Luther uh, has informed our understanding of, of Romans. You remember he nailed his uh, 95 theses on the Wittenberg door over 500 years ago. And for Luther, the book of Romans was all about justification by faith. He keyed off of Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And for Luther, what he was thinking was that the justice of God, God's justification, meant that God had a standard that he could never reach. And he thought that God's demand was pure justice in order to be accepted by him. But then he goes on after really a long time, years of meditation on Romans, he says this, then finally God had mercy on me. And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which the righteous person lives, namely faith. And the sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us, declares us just or righteous by faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. So for Luther, justification by faith was the very center of the book of Romans. Now Deborah and I were Jesus freaks. Have any of you seen the movie Jesus Revolution? Have you seen that? Yes, somebody. 
Not yet, okay. If you see it, it's all about uh, our generation. When God was doing a great thing, late 1960s, early 1970s, when there were giants in the land and dinosaurs roamed the earth a long time ago, uh, about what was known as the Jesus movement. And we were part of that. We were uh, long hair. Well, Deborah had very long hair. I had, I had a haircut out, a curly hair out to here, and a big, I was scary looking. And God saved a lot of us out of the drug culture and brought us to faith. And the book of Romans became very important because we were zealous to win the world for Christ. So Romans 10 became our key text and what Romans was really all about. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. How then can they call on the one whom they had not believed in? And how can they believe in one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to, get, preaching to them? So what we and many others did was we got bought buses, and we painted them in vans, and we took off as Jesus freaks, Long-haired hippies who said, you know, we're one in the Spirit, and one way is the only way Jesus is, and we brought the message to college campuses. For us, the book of Romans was all about spreading the gospel of Christ. For others, um, and really this is part of my life, trying to figure out how to live a Christian life. How do we live according to the, uh, according to Scripture? So Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 were very, very important. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So texts like Romans 6 and Romans 8, Romans 6, about being uh, dead and buried with Christ and raised again to new life, and Romans 8, about living in the Spirit. And then there's this thing in Romans 7, have you read that? I want to do what's right, I end up doing what's wrong, what's wrong with me? And that, you know, was the struggle, Romans 6 through 8, with that key verse in Romans 12. So for some, it's about justification by faith. For some, it's about evangelism. For some, it's about Christian living. For some, it's about God's election. And uh, in Romans, especially chapters 9 through 11, there's this long discussion about God's election. And one of the key texts is Romans 9, 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants, mercy, wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So for many of us, Romans becomes a theological problem. You know, are we going to be Wesleyans that believe that God chooses us after foreknowing our faith, who is going to believe, or are we chosen out of God's pure love and mercy with no consideration whatsoever of our decision? Are we going to be Reformed or Wesleyan? And that became the big debate. Have you ever had a, a, a debate about that, about election? No? Don't do it, okay? <laughs> but I would like to suggest that Paul touches, yes, he does touch on all these themes in the book of Romans and many others, but I think he has another purpose in mind, something that has to do what was, with what was going down in the Roman church at that time, and it has to do with what's happening in our day, in our world as well. And I think that Romans, in this juncture and in, in history, in this nation, in this world, 
Romans is probably one of the most relevant books for us. I'd like us to read Romans chapter 15. There was a, um, a scholar at Garrett Theological Seminary, the late Robert Jewett, a really, really fine man. He spent 25 years, 25 years writing a commentary on Romans. It is that thick. And if you don't want to read it all the way through, it makes a great doorstop. Okay? And, uh, and Jewett just did a wonderful thing. What he did was that he began to read Romans back to front instead of front to back. And he began to ask questions about why so much discussion about greeting one another, why so much talk about uh, uh, keeping days and unity in the church and, and about dietary laws. And what Jewett argued, and I think he was right, is that really the heart of Romans can be found in texts like Romans 15.7, which we'll get to in just a second. Let me read here. And if you would follow along, now I'm going to intersperse the reading with some annoying comments, okay? And hopefully they'll be helpful, but I will interrupt the reading. He says, we who are strong, and this is from the uh, New Revised Standard Version, we who are strong, and the strong are those that are, have social power, that have status and honor in society. We ought, and notice the language of obligation, we ought to put up with the failings of the weak. Now, the translation to put up with, I'm not sure it's the best one. And uh, I would probably, and forgive me, I used to teach Greek, okay? So uh, I would probably translate it sort of like they do in uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, that... um, uh, where uh, Paul says, bear one another's burdens. So instead of put up with, um, it's not simply about tolerance, but it's about caring, it's about helping one another, that we should bear, build up one another, the failings of the weak. Now, the weak are those that are, have little social power, that are low status in society. Uh, they might be poor, they're lacking honor in society. And so, um, in a society where the weak were supposed to support the strong, the ones with dishonor, those that were lowest in society, were supposed to support the powerful and the rich and those of high status, Paul reverses everything. That the powerful, those that with social status and honor, should take care of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. And if you're listening closely, you can hear a bit of Jesus in there, can't you? Jesus who said, love your neighbor as yourself. And here's just a a variation on that love command that we should look out for the well-being of our, our neighbor. For Christ did not please himself. Now, Christ's life then becomes the model or the paradigm that we're supposed to follow. As it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So um, uh, that's why we read the Bible. Amen? Hello? That's why we read the Bible. The things written before were for our instruction. And isn't that marvelous? Here we have these documents that are thousands of years old, and yet God continues to speak to us through them. That's why we got to be in the Bible studies. Amen? That's why we got to study Scripture ourselves. Amen? 
Excuse me, I'm an old Pentecostal. Pentecostal preaching is always antiphonal. It's challenge and repose. It's back and forth. So that's why I'm saying, seeing if you would agree or not. Is that okay? Can I be a Pentecostal? I won't speak in tongues. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm sorry, I got lost here. Um, <laughs> for what was written in former days was written for our instruction. Amen. So that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live. Now, now notice the, langu- the group language here. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that language of unity, I'm I'm working on the book of Acts right now, and uh, one of the things that runs through the book of Acts is uh, in chapter 2 and chapter 4, talks about the uh, believers sharing their goods with one another to make sure that there wasn't somebody that was in, in poverty. If somebody has this world's goods and they see somebody that has need, you know, they'll share that with, with others in the church. Sharing goods. And then also this note about um, uh, being uh, of one mind and of one accord. And going all the way back to the philosopher Aristotle, there was a discussion about what constituted friendship. And friendship was defined as uh, two people uh, sharing common property, helping one another. And uh, the expression that you hear over and over again is that friends are one soul in two bodies. One soul and two bodies. And what Luke does in the book of Acts, and it comes out here as well, is that he's envisioning this body of believers as a company of genuine, true friends. Let me tell you, friendship has so much value as we share life together. Amen? It's coming together on a Sunday morning. It's talking with one another. It's supporting one another. It's praying, as we did this morning, for one another. We need friends. So now take a look at verse 7. Welcome one another, as we did earlier. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now Robert Jewett said this is the very heart of the book of Romans. Here Christ is viewed as a host in a banquet, who sets the table, who sends out the invitations, sets the table, and welcomes his guests, and seats them at the table. And his welcome of each and every one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, from the poorest to the richest, men and women alike, he says, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you. Christ is a paradigm. In the next slide, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant 
that is that he would serve others. He's the one that takes on the menial tasks. He doesn't seek status or honor for himself. Christ became a servant of the circumcised, and that's the Jewish people. Now, I want you to watch what's happening here with the issues of ethnicity. He, he became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles... And you remember Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, to this, the Gospels to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, or the Gentiles. He might glorify God in his mercy. And now, here's Paul again. This guy knows scripture, and he's just rattling it off, one after another. Therefore, I will confess you among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. He pulls out a Psalm 18, verse 49. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now, there's the his people are the Jewish people. That comes from Psalm 117.1. And again in Isaiah, that is in Isaiah 11.10, in our Bibles, the root of Jesse, and you remember that David was the son of Jesse, and Jesus being the descendant of David, the root of Jesse shall come, and the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, and in him Gentiles shall hope. Now, Paul is trying to show this Roman church the importance in God's plan of both the Jews and the Gentiles, people of very different ethnicities, very different histories, very different value sets. And then he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and space in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Romans fifteen seven, Welcome one another, therefore, for as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And Jewett says this is the heart of Romans, and I think he's right. Now, Paul wrote the book of Romans when he was in the city of Corinth, uh, or perhaps the ports, one of the port cities of, of Corinth, a town called Sencrea, on the third missionary journey. Have you ever read Romans 16? And there's a woman in there who is a leader of the church in Sencrea. Do you remember her name? Phoebe. Phoebe. I'd love to have a daughter named Phoebe. My wife would not allow that, but uh, <laughs> Phoebe. And Phoebe was the patroness of the church. She was the leader of the church, and most likely the person that carried the book of Romans to the Roman church. And very often what would happen is that a messenger uh, of the letter would give commentary on the letter. It wasn't just about, here's the letter. They, they, they were more than the postal service uh, with one of those forever stamps, but the messenger would give interpretation. Phoebe was the leader of the church. Hello. Why are all the women saying amen? This is good. Phoebe was a leader of the church. She was a messenger. And she would have given the interpretation. The first commentary on the book of Romans wasn't this thick thing by Robert Jewett, but it was by our sister Phoebe. Oh, to be in that meeting, right? And listen to her. So Paul wrote Romans um, probably from Sencrea or Corinth, but most likely since right around A.D. 56 and 57. Hold that date in your mind, 56 or 57. Um, now, we don't know who founded the church in Rome. It, it was probably not Peter. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, that there were <coughs> Jews from the city of Rome, 
at Pentecost, and probably they're the ones that brought the gospel back there. We do know that there was a body of Jews in uh, Jewish Christians, rather, in Rome by at least A.D. 49. I mean, we have hard evidence of that because uh, there was a persecution against the Jewish people in Rome in A.D. 49 under the emperor Claudius. And uh, Suetonius, the Roman historian, said that Claudius, quote, banished from Rome all the Jews who were continually making disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. Does that sound familiar? At the instigation of Crestus. See, Crestus was a common Latin name. And what happened was that, and you find this in a variety of texts, that here are Christians talking about Christos, Christ, and the Latins couldn't quite understand it, and they said, oh, Crestus. It's like Deborah and I lived in Latin America for many years. My name is Gene, G-E-N-E. I would say to Latin Americans, uh, they'd say, como se llama? And I'd say, Gene. And they'd say, ay, Jim, which is Jim in Spanish. I said, no, 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 it's Jim, no, it's Jim. Mi nombre es Gene. And they could never get it. You know, so in Latin America, I'm Eugenio, because they couldn't get it. Well, that's, that same type of thing was happening here with Christos and Crestus. So it seems like there was a group of Christians, Jewish Christians, and there was conflict between uh, the, uh, the Christians there, the Jewish Christians, and also those that uh, were Jewish and didn't follow Christ. But in any case, I think the important thing here to see is that uh, Claudius banished them from the book of Rome, from, book of Romans, from the city of Rome. He sent them out. He didn't like the disturbances that were caused. Can you imagine here in Naperville being sent out of town because of conflicts here in the church? Can you imagine that? I can't. But that's what exactly happened to the Jews. And we read about, um, in Acts chapter 18, about Priscilla and Aquila, who met up with Paul in the uh, city of Corinth because they had been expelled under Claudius. So this is picked up in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. The point that I'd like to make here is that the Romans really didn't like the Jewish people. There was a lot of animosity towards them, a lot of hostility towards them, mainly because the Jewish people did not worship the emperor as a god. They didn't support the uh, local deities. And one of the most important things in the ancient world was to maintain the Pax Deorum. Do you want to learn some Latin this morning? How many of you know Latin? Say with me. Pax Deorum. Pax Deorum. That's peace with the gods. And if you're going to be a good citizen, you had to worship the gods of your community because the gods are the benefactors and protectors of the community. So if you're not going to the local temple and offering sacrifice, that is an antisocial act. And so the Jews were viewed with a lot of suspicions, and so too the Christians, for not worshiping the idols and not worshiping the emperor as a god. Now we're going to read a little bit from Tacitus 
uh, here. And I know this is not your usual Sunday morning reading, um, but Tacitus was a Roman historian. And we, we read here um, some of the animosity that there is towards the Jewish populace. He was a Roman historian, and he said, in order to secure the allegiance of his people in the future, Moses prescribed for them a novel religion quite different from those of the rest of mankind. Among the Jews, all things are profane that we hold sacred, and on the other hand, they regard as permissible that which seems to us immoral, whatever their origin in other words, we don't know about their roots. We don't know where they came from. These observances are sanctioned by their antiquity. The other practices of the Jews are sinister and revolting. Can you hear the hostility here? And have entrenched themselves in their very wickedness. Wretches of the most abandoned kind who had no use for the religion of their fathers took to contributing dues and free will offerings to swell the Jewish treasury and other reasons for their increasing wealth. So you hear this this. A concern about their uh, their financial gain, but the rest of the world they confront with a hatred reserved for enemies. They will not uh, feed or intermarry with Gentiles. And you can read the rest of it there on this slide and the next one. The Jews were denigrated. There was hostility against them. They were the lowest of the low in the minds of people in Roman society. They were the others. They were the aliens regardless of what their citizenship was. Now, the Jewish populace reciprocated, and that hostility of the Gentiles, the Romans, against the Jewish populace was turned around, and the Jews had tremendous hostility towards the, um, towards the Gentiles as well. We're going to read Jubilees, chapter 22. And Jubilees... Um, was uh, uh, written uh, around the 2nd century B.C. It, it, it does its own retelling of Genesis uh, and Exodus 1 through 20. And we see here in this text how it reinforces the prejudices of uh, the Jews against the Gentiles. And so you also, my son Jacob, remember my words and keep the commandments of Abraham, your father. Separate yourself from the Gentiles. Have nothing to do with them. Do not eat with them. No Dunkin' Donuts between you, right? Do not perform deeds like theirs. Do not become associates with, with theirs because their deeds are defiled and all their ways are contaminated and despicable and abominable. Prejudice? Yeah. The miracle of the gospel of Jesus Christ was that these Jews and these Gentiles were both welcomed by Christ. He hosted them. Something that the Apostle Peter learned when uh, the Lord called him to preach the gospel to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and those of his friends. And in Acts chapter 11, when Peter is uh, called before the leaders in Jerusalem, the first thing they asked him was, why did you go in with Gentiles and eat with them? With the table fellowship being that sign of acceptance and grace, that sign of, of friendship and communion and acceptance. Why did you do that? 
Now, in the Church of Rome, this is where we're coming back, there were both Jews and Gentiles. I mean, take a look at uh, Romans 9 through 11. Now, Paul had affirmed that what God did in Christ is that he broke down the hostility between Jew and Gentile. You read this in, in Ephesians 2, and made them, brought them together in one body, and in one body reconciled them both to God. So we don't get there without one another. We do not get there without one another. There, the Roman Catholic Church has said there's no salvation outside the church. Now, they're thinking Roman Catholic Church, but they do have a point. Jesus is our personal Savior, but he is our Savior together. We are saved together because God has taken all of us, men, women, young and old, it doesn't matter, our ethnicity, Jew, Gentile, we come together and in one body we're reconciled to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We don't get there without one another. And that has all kinds of implications for how we live then together. But sometimes that wonderful work of welcome, that wonderful work of reconciliation that God has effected through Christ as the host who sets the table, the common table for all of us, sometimes that doesn't work its way into the warp and woof of the life of the church discriminatory attitudes and actions sometimes prevail over the new thing that God is doing through Christ. One, looks, one group looks upon another as a dishonorable. Suspicions remain. Marginalization happens. Social, inclu- social exclusion and negative comments uh, happen. Sometimes the values that we inherit from our childhood and our societies filter their way into the church and remain there, and sometimes even get the stamp as we take and weaponize Scripture to endorse our prejudices. Some in the early church thought that the Gentiles, if they were going to be followers of Christ, would have to become Jews. They'd have to become proselytes. That's why circumcision was such a a big thing. You had this group of people, Christian, Jewish Christians, who were... Judaizers. And what that meant was that they said, if you're going to be follower of Jesus, who is the Jewish Messiah of the line of David, you have to become a Jew. And the early church fought a battle over this. In Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, do Gentiles have to become converted culturally? Do they have to become Jews in order to become followers of Christ. And the Jerusalem Council said, no way. And Galatians exactly says the same thing. You do not have to change your ethnicity in order to become a follower of Christ. One could maintain one's cultural identity and be a disciple and sit at the table at those of other ethnicities. Now, we cannot understand what Paul is facing in the Roman church unless we understand this tension in society. The Jews were expelled from Rome during the reign of Claudius. But after Claudius died, the emperor died in AD 54, the Jewish populace began to filter back into the city of Rome, among them Jewish Christians. So imagine this for a second. 
you had a group of Christians in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish Christians are marched out of town, but eventually come back and they try to reintegrate with the church. And it didn't go well because old prejudices prevailed. That's why Paul wrote Romans. One of the main reasons he wrote Romans. And he has to tell them to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Romans 14. We begin to pick this up here, and we see where Paul is dealing with um, the, uh, uh, the issues. Can we get Romans 14 up there? Sorry. I love this thing here. This is cool. This is one of the cool churches. I love this. Um, Romans, I, I love the technology. You know, I, I'm sorry, I'm getting sidetracked. Have you ever had a sermon about technology? You need, you need a sermon on technology. Theology of technology. Right? With all our phones and our video games and internet and Twitter. Do we, do we still do tr- Twitter? Do we, Elon Musk? No, okay, I'll, I'll not go there. I'll just leave it alone. Okay, uh, we're, we're in Romans, right? Romans 14. Now listen. Welcome. Here it is. Those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe that eating anything, uh, in eating anything, the weak only eat vegetables. Those who, who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat. Now, this is the Jew-Gentile issue about the dietary laws. For God has welcomed them. There it is again. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? We're all servants of Christ. It It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Now, the Jewish Christians were keeping the Sabbath, and others were not. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Now, you know, there's some churches that meet on Saturday night, right? Seventh-day Adventists, they, re- they meet on Saturday. Well, Paul says, eh, let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God, while those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. But the main point is this, welcome one another, for God has welcomed them. So Paul announces the theme of welcome here in 14.1. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. And then in verse 3, for God has welcomed them. Welcome one another, therefore, as Christ has welcomed you. Romans then ends with a series of exhortations and calls them to greet one another. The greetings in the last part of the book are an integral part of his, um, of his, of his letter. I'm sorry here. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. 
I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. So Paul calls for radical hospitality. Do not pass judgment upon one another. Do not despise one another. Do not cause divisions. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And why? Because God has welcomed all members of the community. Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And Christ is the one that sets this glorious banquet of the gospel for all of us to partake at. Each one of us with a place at the table. And there it is. There's the gospel. You know, I don't know what the gospel is all about. It's about the word that you had up here on the slide at the very beginning of service. Welcome. That is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. The heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is welcome. That's what God did for us. He welcomed us. He set a table for us. He saw us. He sought us when we were sinners. He reached out to us, and he said, come on in. Look, I wasn't raised in a Christian family. I came from a broken family with all kinds of violence. Uh, my, my great uncle was the uh, Al Capone's hitman in Bodyguard. That's right. I'm a Christian. Okay, don't, don't be afraid. I, you know, no guns, okay? <laughs> but God saved me. And he welcomed me as a you know, dope-smoking hippie. He invited me in to be part of the family. And he's done the same with you. Now we take a look at the life of Jesus and we see this being played out. In the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4, we read how that Jesus went to the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and he took the scroll of the book of Isaiah and he read from that section which we know as Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed. So he goes to the poor and he preaches good news to them. He reaches out to the captives, those who have been jailed and bound and jailed, and he came to liberate them. He reaches out to the lame and the sick to heal them. We see this throughout his ministry. He came to the socially oppressed because of their nationality or ethnicity, their social status, their gender, their age, occupation. He sets them at liberty. Isaiah 61 comes to life in the ministry of Jesus. He calls the children to come to him because, and declares that there, to them belongs the kingdom of God. He feeds the hungry. He reaches out to women. In fact, the women support his ministry and wept when he went to the cross. He even invites people like Matthews, the tax collectors and the sinners, people of low status and questionable morals, those who are not honored in society, and he eats with them. In fact, he was accused of being a, a, a glutton and a drunkard. He welcomes the ones who fail. When Peter had denied the Lord, 
three times. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, go tell my disciples and Peter. He reaches out to the ones who fail. And he even welcomed a terrorist, a guy by the name of Saul, who then became the Apostle Paul. The ministry of Jesus was a ministry of welcome. Now, Paul calls the Roman Christians to do the same. Welcome is the gospel of Christ. As God has welcomed us in Christ, we are to welcome one another. And Paul calls us to welcome those within the community and beyond. He welcomes the citizen and the refugee. He welcomes those within the 312, the 630, the 847 area code, the Haitians and the black community, the Cubans, the Venezuelans, the Koreans, the Bahamians, the Kenyans, the Jamaicans, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Filipinos, the Russians, Nigerians, French, and English, and the Colombians, and even Lebanese like me, both Jewish people and Gentiles. He welcomes the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, men and women alike, children and elders. A table is set. The invitation goes out. All have a place at the table. All get the same food. It's buffalo wings and prime rib with a side of spaghetti and kimchi. We haven't always followed that example of Christ. Um, Dr. Cho mentioned uh, our work with indigenous peoples. And uh, currently I serve on the Committee on Native American Ministries and uh, the Native American Course of Studies with the United Methodist Church. Um, the indigenous peoples of the land, the first peoples of the land, the Potawatomi in this area, have not always um, found that the gospel meant uh, welcome. We drove them off the land, uh, believing that this was a promised land. If we can go to the next slide with a picture there. Um, and... Um, uh, we, we basically killed off the people of the land, drove them off the land, and then we took their children, uh, which was probably one of the most, well, one of the many horrors that we unleashed upon the first peoples of this land. We took their children, and we put them in residential schools, and we cut their hair, and we put different clothes on them, and we forbid them to speak their language or practice their religion. Uh, we attempted to convert them culturally, and the church was a main party in this, along with the U.S. government, that we forced cultural conversion on the indigenous peoples of the land. Now, the institution where I used to teach, where Dr. Cho is, Wheaton College, the very first president of Wheaton College, uh, Jonathan Blanchard, uh, supported this, this policy. And you can see here, these are the same children. Um, sort of your before and after picture as these children were taken from their families and put into the uh, Carlisle School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And listen to what Jonathan Blanchard said and you can hear this idea of the necessity of cultural conversion, at least according to his opinion. He says, the true Indian policy is not in their isolation. That means concentrated and perpetual barbarism, and you can see the prejudice here, but rather their absorption, absorption by an intimate blending with the white race as part of the body politic. 
Between this policy and extinction, there seems to be no middle ground. The history of civilization never gives an instance of the rise of people from barbarism except by the aid of those possessed of higher civilization. And who are those? The Indians, who have made some progress towards Christian development, are no exception. Their progress has resulted solely from missionary effort, the reservation plan pushing them off onto reservations like Pine Ridge, except where connected with vigorous missionary labors, has become more and more worse, more and worse than a failure. The plan of Captain Pratt at the Carlisle, Pennsylvania School to educate Indian youth and scatter them among Christian families of the state has worked well. Can you imagine somebody coming along and taking your children and putting them with a family that you don't know, with a completely different language, a completely different religion, a completely different culture. It made them self-supporting, Blanchard said, self-respecting Christian people. The same plan on a larger scale would be incomparably cheaper, wiser, and better than feeding and watching them in the reservation system. Each Indian youth is a, in a government, government school is a hostage for the good behavior of his tribe. Such hostages need no prisons for their confinement and feel no animosity towards their captors, right? The true Indian policy, we repeat, is his... Get this, this is so painful. Is his Christian education by his white brother with a view to making him a fellow citizen. Those are words to make you weep. I know people that went through this Ed Youngman, afraid of his horses. The late Ed Youngman, afraid of his horses. Love the name. Isn't that a great name? Young man, afraid of his horses. Ed told me about being taken from his family, put in a residential school, and they forbid him to speak his, his language. Joe Yazzie, a, a Navajo from here in Chicago, in here in Chicago now, was taken for his family and put separated from his brother. And then when he went back home to the Navajo, he told me one time, he said, Gene, I didn't know how to ride a horse, which for him was an essential part of his Navajo identity. Sherry Russell in Canada, um, First Peoples, First Nations woman, was taken in the scoop in the 1960s. This went on through the 1970s. But in the 1960s, Sherry Russell was taken, her and her sister, and put in a residential school while mom was out doing shopping. Can you imagine somebody coming in and taking your children? And this was done in the name of Christianity. Now, thanks be to God, there are Native Americans now who are following Christ as Native Americans. Things have changed in many ways, but not completely. In other words, Christ's welcome does not mean that we have to become something other than what we are. Yes, we give up our sin, but we don't give up our identity. Welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you. And the marvel of the church was that it was able to bring together people of different ages, both genders, different ethnicities, and brought them together around a common table. If we understand welcome as the heart of the gospel, then I ask you, how does this affect our evangelism? Well, how will it shape our life together as a church? How will we respond to both rich and poor? 
how we live together as old and young, as men and women, a people of different ethnicities. How will this mold our commitments in society, especially in this age of so much cultural and racial tension, economic disparity, discrimination, and assertion of Christian nationalism? If we understand that the heart of God's plan is welcome, how will this shape our being and actions as society? Now, I believe, I'm going to end with this. I believe that the church, us, those of us here, need to be a sign of reconciliation in the world. In a society that is so crazy fractured, we need to be showing them a different way, the way of Christ, the way of welcome, the way of embracing one another, the way of sharing with one another, of life together, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. We are a sign and as one old movie used to say by Dennis Howard, Easy Rider, I think it was, the whole, yeah, Dr. Cho remembers, some of you will remember, but not all of you, the whole world is watching. The whole world is watching. The whole world is watching. So, Paul ends the book of Romans. And he ends it this way. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, you might want to translate that. Maybe it's you're a little bit more comfortable with a holy hug, a holy handshake, a holy wave. But he says, greet one another. Let's stand. And turn to somebody next to you, around you, and let's greet one another in the name of Christ and say, welcome. God bless you. Welcome. Welcome. God bless you. God bless you. And the people of God said, God bless you all.